0: One weekend, a pastor was giving a children's sermon to all the kids in church. A bright-eyed three-year-old girl was listening intently as he explained how God wanted them all to get along and to love one another. She was tracking with her pastor until he said these words, God wants us all to be one. The little girl stood up and loudly protested, but I don't want to be one. I want to be four. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, this girl might be speaking for many of us who don't want to be one either. See, it's much easier to splinter into four groups or 40 groups or or 400 groups or even 4,000 different groups. Now, it's difficult to get an exact count because the numbers keep going up. But there are thousands of different denominations and religious groups in the United States alone. Because we're going through a few of the one another statements in our sermon series, I decided to sit down one morning and write down all the one another's. But I ran out of room. You see, this phrase occurs 100 times in the New Testament. Making up 59 specific commands. Last weekend, we handed out puzzle pieces to help establish this truth, that God has placed you to live out your purpose in this place, all for his pleasure. And today, we're going to consider how we can be united with one another. We're going to begin with a survey of some verses. We'll start in the Old Testament, and then we'll work our way to the New Testament. I'll put them up on the screen, and when I come to the phrase that's underlined, if you could say that part of the verse with me, Judges chapter 20, verse 11, so all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. Second Chronicles 30, verse 12, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Psalm 133, verse 1, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Jeremiah 32, 38, and 39, you see, you've sensed God's heart here. He says, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. New Testament, words of Jesus, John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will will be one flock, one shepherd. Romans 15, 5 and 6, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, written to a church filled with problems and division Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And So the Apostle Paul doesn't know if he's going to be able to visit that church. So he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 2, 2, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And 1 Peter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let me ask some questions to help us engage and enter in. To these moments, how are you doing in your quest for unity within the community of faith? Would you say Edgewood is united as one person so we can with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And are we living together with unity of mind and singleness of heart? So that we can go with the gospel message. These are tough questions to answer, aren't they? Because left to ourselves, we don't automatically drift toward unity. In fact, our default setting is disunity. History is littered with a lack of harmony among humans. Now, the good news is we're not the first group of believers to display dissonance. Even the disciples who spent three years with Jesus demonstrated more discord than accord. Think of James and John. They caused jealousy and envy among the other disciples when they were positioning themselves, one to sit on the right and one on the left hand of Jesus. And unbelievably, right after Jesus celebrated his last meal with the disciples. We know it as the last supper. It was a Passover meal. While the disciples are still reclining at the table, Luke 22, verse 24 says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Are you kidding After Jesus washed their dirty and smelly feet and dried their feet, he's just about to offer himself as their sin substitute. All they can think about is which one of them was the greatest. In fact, their selfishness led to a dispute. That word means strife, faction, dissension. More literally, it means a love of contention. Do you know anybody like that? They just seem to love to go at it? Don't look at the person next to you. It'll become very uncomfortable, right? So here's the disciples. They're divided. On the very night Jesus was preparing to deliver his life for them. So in those final moments before his arrest, Jesus could have prayed for his own strength. He could have requested that the 11 would support him. His intercession to the Father could have been filled with the desire to make the disciples better teachers, better leaders, better servants, better givers. Uh, That's not what he prayed. Instead, his prayer was dominated by a single thought. Jesus wanted them to be a community of unity. Open your Bibles to John 17:1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said. This really is the true Lord's prayer. The other prayer we refer to as the Lord's prayer might be better named the disciples' prayer because Jesus gave it to them when they asked how You pray. This is the longest prayer of Jesus. This prayer is saturated with urgency. We can hear the agonized intensity as Jesus pleads with his Father to make his followers one. In fact, we'll see that he pleads for unity four different times. The word that is used 19 times. That's a purpose clause, often translated this way: so that to indicate Jesus has a purpose behind his prayer. He is praying so that his followers become united with him and with each other. Next, his prayer was prayed aloud for the disciples' benefit. His followers couldn't help but be moved and convicted about their own disregard for unity as they're hearing Jesus pour out his heart to the father. Last thing I wrote down is we need supernatural strength to be united with fellow followers of Jesus. If the early Christians struggled to maintain unity, and you and I do as well, well it's obvious we need God's help in this area. The very fact Jesus prayed for unity indicates uh, this is something you and I can't accomplish on our own. I see some themes in his prayer. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He prays that he would be glorified. 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples, that they'd be sanctified. And verses 20 to 26, he prays for future followers. He's praying for us. And what is he praying? He's praying that we would be united. Jesus is praying for us to be a community of unity. I put that in the present tense on purpose. Because Hebrews 7.25 says this, Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know right now Jesus is praying for you? He's interceding for you. Drop down to John 17.11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's referring to his disciples. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus knows he's leaving his disciples behind in a very bombastic world. He can foresee upcoming temptations. He can see the persecution they're going to face. He knows how the deceiver will work to divide the disciples. So what does he do? He prays for their unity. Observe, he calls, him, calls God Holy Father, indicating that the Father is far above the wickedness of the world. We sang about that just a few minutes ago. Holy, holy, holy. The Father's name stands for all his resources, all of his power, all of his abilities. So Jesus is asking his Father to stand guard over those who've put their faith in him by unleashing an arsenal of protective oversight. Satan's strategy throughout church history has been to destroy unity within the body of Christ. So think of it this way. If he can destroy our oneness, our power will be diffused, we'll get discouraged, and our message will be destroyed. This protection Jesus prays for his disciples has a purpose in mind, that they may be One, even as we are one. In the original, it's even more forceful. The meaning is this, so that they may be constantly one. Not once in a while. Or we could read it this way, that they may keep on being one. Look at verse 20. This request is amplified when Jesus expands his intercession to include you and me. I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I love that. Belief comes through the hearing of the message just as it always has. The disciples were faithful in spreading the word and the gospel has gone down generation by generation. Millions have come to Christ in every generation all over the globe, and that comes down right to us today. Robert McShane once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. I'd like you to close your eyes, and I I want you to picture Jesus praying for you. And I'm going to read verses 21 to 23. I'm going to actually read his prayer for you, words of Jesus, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. God, how humbling to know that Jesus continues to pray for us. And now, as we take a closer look at this passage, thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher. Help us to understand, interpret correctly, and then to engage our wills that we might put into practice what you have for us today. Lord, while we're praying here, we think of our persecuted brothers and sisters in hard places all over the globe today. We pray that they'd be faithful, they'd be firm in their faith, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you observe this request for oneness is made with increasing intensity in each verse? Verse 21, that they may all be one. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become, listen to this word, perfectly one. Jesus doesn't pray for uniformity. That would mean everyone's the same. He doesn't pray for unanimity. He doesn't pray for absolute agreement of opinion. He doesn't pray for union. That's absolute affiliation. He prays for unity. That's oneness of faith and heart and purpose. Well, let's ponder five principles that come right from this prayer. Number one, the parameters of oneness include all believers. Jesus doesn't want us just to get along with a few people. Observe, he said, that they may all be one. It's not just us four and no more. True believers are one no matter what name is on the church sign. We are redeemed by the same blood and if you're born again, you're going to the same heaven. That means we share a common unity or community with believers in the past, in the present, and in the future. Here in our community, in our counties, in our country, and with believers on the continents. You know, before I baptize someone, I often say words like this, especially if the person is nervous, and most everybody when they're baptized is nervous. I was as a 19-year-old for sure. I say something like this. Imagine all the people that have been baptized since Jesus was baptized. Just imagine the millions upon millions of people from then up until now. And you are standing in a long line of faithful followers of Jesus being obedient to his command. And then I say something like this. Imagine all the believers who are being baptized right now, this weekend, the same time that you are being baptized. You're one with them. You'll hear more about this later, but our next baptism services are March 13th and 14th. That's next weekend. Let me add a couple cautions to this first point. Let's avoid extreme separatism. Some believers refuse to acknowledge that there are Christians in other churches. Some groups criticize and label people just because they don't hold to the same identical outward standards as they do. That's caution number one. Caution number two. Avoid ecumenical sloppiness. The push for ecumenical uniformity among churches should also be avoided. Here's why. There are doctrinal differences. And there are biblical distinctives which must be maintained. Earlier in this same prayer, look at verse 17. Jesus said, said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So truth alone must determine our alignments. Why? Because frankly, we're not all headed in the same direction. We do not all serve the same God. Only those who are born again are our brothers and sisters in the faith. And sadly, many churches have pursued ecumenical union at the expense of biblical truth in the 1970s the struggle was for biblical inerrancy today the debate seems to be centered more on the authority of Scripture or we could say it this way on the sufficiency of Scripture so here's a question we need to ask and answer as a church but you need to ask and answer it in your homes on your campuses, in your workplaces, in the community? Will we hold to the authority of Scripture as it relates to biblical creationism, gender, sexuality, the definition of marriage, and the exclusivity of Christ? What will we do? What will you do when cancel culture Leads to the canceling of Christians because we believe the Bible. I don't know if you saw this week or heard this. There was a debate in Congress this week about the Equality Act. And one brave congressman stood up and started reading from the Bible. Did you see that? Started reading from the Bible. Well, in response, another congressman made this very unsettling comment, and I quote, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. So listen, on a related note, Josh Mulvihill, who spoke here at our grandparents' conference, he made this tweet this week. You ponder this and see if it resonates. Many young people are not on a truth quest, but on a happiness quest. We must convince young people that they will be happiest when they live according to God's truth found in the Bible. Happiness is found in holiness, not apart from it. Third caution, unity doesn't mean uniformity. I quote Augustine again, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. It's possible to be diverse and yet not be divided. We learned last weekend, we're all distinct pieces of the puzzle and our variety is valuable. We have different gifts, different abilities, different personalities, different thoughts, and different opinions. We're not called to be the same. We're called to be one. So we can have harmony even though we're not homogeneous. Don't expect someone, everyone, to be exactly like you and to think the way you think. It's impossible within a diverse church. So Jesus is praying for us to be a community of unity. Number two, the pattern for oneness is linked to the unity within the trinity. This is a deep truth. Verse 11, Jesus prays for his disciples to experience the oneness which exists in his relationship with the Father. Verse 21, he prays that they also may be in us. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. You and I be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. The unity Christ prays for us is so intimate, so personal, so vital that it's patterned after, it's based upon the relationships that exist within the Trinity. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 captures how truth is tied to the Trinity. There is one body and one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Would you observe next? The purpose of oneness is to accelerate evangelism. Look at the last part of verse 21, so that the world may believe. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me. So we don't just get together and enjoy unity for our own sakes because oneness is ultimately designed to accelerate evangelism. And when unity is fractured within a church or between churches, the bridge between believers and unbelievers is effectively blown up. A divided Christian Christian community denies by its behavior the message it proclaims. Think of it this way. One who is seeking truth is attracted to oneness and harmony in churches. When unity is absent, they can smell it and they'll be turned off by it. And I'm convinced that dissension and disunity have hindered more revivals than you and I can even imagine. Lost people are not looking to be part of another organization which is fighting among themselves. When a future believer looks at followers who are launching verbal grenades at each other, he or she may say, if they can't even agree on the truth among themselves, how could they possibly teach me the truth? One example of how unity among believers led to evangelism happened, well, it happened just this week and all last month when 16 gospel-preaching churches here in the Quad Cities participated in Moody Radio's initiative to bless 2,000 healthcare heroes with thank you cards. Edgewood, You're amazing. It's so humbling that over 1,300 thank you cards were written by the people of Edgewood. You put all the churches together, 3,400 thank you cards came in. These notes were put in a bag along with a Chick-fil-A sandwich card for a free sandwich and a gospel book called Anchor for the Soul. I talked to Linda, who's manager of the parish nurse program at Unity Point. I talked to her Friday night. She's a member at First Free. All of those, I don't think the Genesis ones are completely delivered yet. 800 of those are going to Unity Point, 1,200 in the Genesis system. But I know at the Unity Point, Rock Island has received them, Moline, Muscatine, and Bettendorf. Bless you, church, for your involvement with that. Jesus is praying for us to be a community of unity. Number four, the practice of oneness puts God's reputation on display to the whole world. Verse 22 says, we've been given the glory which was given to Christ. That's another mind blow. It's like, what? The glory that you've given me, Jesus says, I've given to them. The word glory means weighty or heavy. It represents the visible manifestation of all of God's attributes. Literally, Jesus is saying, and I the glory. So the glory God the Father gave to Jesus has been given to us. Now that's weighty. Brothers and sisters, when we are united, The world will stand up and take notice of God because they'll see him glorified in us and through us. Matthew 5, 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. It doesn't end there. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Oneness gives credence to our claims. And specifically, according to verse 23, the world will know two things. Number one, they'll know God's mission. His mission is to send his son to be savior of the world. They'll also know God's message, his message of love for those that he sent Jesus to die for. This means when I violate true Christian unity, I'm hindering the gospel and I'm ruining God's reputation. His mission and his message can get lost in a cacophony of discordant sounds when you and I are disgruntled with fellow followers of Christ. Have you ever wondered if Jesus' prayer has been answered? Well, the first church in Jerusalem uh, they did an excellent job with this. Listen to Acts 4.32. They exhibited extravagant oneness. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, that unity had an eternal impact on the lives of lost people. Listen to Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Number five, the point of oneness is for us to be absolutely united. Listen again to verse 23. I in them, you in me, Jesus says, that they, referring to us, may become perfectly one. The word perfectly derives from a root, conveys the idea of end or aim. It has the idea of maturity and completeness. So the aim of Jesus' prayer is for us to be perfectly one. The mark of a mature disciple is absolute oneness. Our unity with Christ and our submission to him should give us a spirit of humility and sweet harmony with other Christ followers. Jesus is praying for us to be a community of unity. Several years ago, I came across a website. It was simply called One Prayer. I've never forgotten their purpose statement. Here's how it starts. We pray to Jesus, asking him to answer our prayers. Well, most of us would track with that. But here's how the second half of their purpose statement reads. What if we become the answer to his prayer. Well, let's bring this closer to home. How can I be an answer to Jesus' prayer by fostering unity within the community of Edgewood? First, be a grower. Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you heard the phrase, absence makes the heart grow fonder, People often say that as it relates to relationships, and I think there's some truth in that. But in our relationship with God, absence can make the heart wander. And listen, when we wander from God, we often go to war with other people. Distance from God can cause discord with others. Let me say it like this, when you're out of whack with God, you can end up taking a whack at someone else. So let me ask a couple questions. Are you growing in your walk with Christ? If you find yourself out of sync with someone, and if you're like, I can't believe I just said those words. I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I just blew up that relationship. Ask yourself this question. Am I walking with Christ? Have I submitted to Him? Is there a sin that I need to confess? Am I involved in a pattern of habitual sin? Am I too full of myself? Am I fully surrendered to Christ right now so that the fruit of the Spirit is taking root in my life? That's the first thing. Be a grower. Secondly, be a peacemaker. Instead of judging, gossiping, slandering other people, practice being a peacemaker. Someone has said a gossip is just a fool with a keen sense of rumor. Proverbs eleven thirteen: a gossip betrays a confidence. Remember this rule about gossip. The more interesting it is, uh, the more likely it is to be false. Proverbs 6.19 says, Among the things the Lord hates. Do you know the Lord hates some things? Read Proverbs 6. Among those things that he hates is the one who sows discord among the brothers. So let's take it down a notch. Let's work at not being abrasive Let's cut others some slack. Let's stop looking down on those who sin differently than we do. The Bible calls us to be peacemakers, not peace fakers, not peace breakers. And so whether you've been wronged by another believer or maybe you're the one who's done wrong, the Bible says we're to go. And we're to meet face to face and seek reconciliation. You can read more about that in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 18. We're to initiate reconciliation, whether it's our fault or not. So if someone has a grudge against you, follow God's nudge and do what you can to make it right. If you have something against someone, go and meet with him or her. Listen, don't fall for Satan's schemes, be an answer to the prayer of Jesus. I wonder, anyone filled with bitterness because you've refused to forgive someone for something they've done or said to you? It be time to repair that, whether that's a relationship in your home or in the house of God. Keep short accounts with people. Be like the young child who was overheard reciting the prayer given to the disciples and forgive us our trash passes as we forgive those who have passed trash against us. Are you passing around any trash? Get rid of it before it stinks. Romans 12, 18 doesn't allow us to be nonchalant about unity. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So in that ruptured relationship you might be thinking of right now, have you done everything possible as far as it depends on you to deal with the discord or are you being too passive? Number three, be a uniter. Ephesians 4.3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The new American standard is a bit stronger. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Question. What one thing can you do this week to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Thomas Brooks, a Puritan preacher, once said this, Discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another lamb? Well, that's unnatural and monstrous. Are you willing to be an answer to Jesus' prayer, the Navigators, that's a Christ-centered ministry devoted to discipleship, has developed a relational covenant they require of all their staff members. I'm going to read it. I'm going to put it up on the screen as well. And when I'm done reading it, we're just going to pause and be quiet, and we're all going to turn and just look at that and in the hopes that we'll make this covenant our own. We personally and corporately agree and commit to, number one, pursue reconciliation, and when possible, resolution in all interpersonal conflicts. Number two, talk directly to those with whom we experience conflict rather than talking about them to others. Number three, be edifying in our discussions about others. And number four, hold each other accountable when we violate this commitment. A week ago, I painted our back room while listening to an audio book called Into the Wild. It was written by John Krakauer. Perhaps some of you have read it or listened to the book. I think it's also a movie. This book chronicles a tragic story. It's a story of Christopher McCandles and his quest for purpose and meaning in life after refusing to forgive his parents bitterness put down this deep root in his life and once he graduated from emory college in georgia any money he had he gave it all away and there's a scene where he emptied even the dollars out of his pocket and he burned all of his money he spent the next couple years just traveling around the United States in search of purpose and meaning. Eventually, he made it to Alaska, where he settled in an abandoned bus in the remote wilderness. And at first, he seemed to enjoy the isolation, but after a few months, he experienced acute loneliness. After ingesting some poisonous berries, he wrote these words in the margin of Dr. Zhivago, which was the last book he would ever read. Here are the words. Happiness only real when shared. He died unhappy, isolated, bitter, and alone. And he scribbled these words next to this sentence from the book. And so it turned out that only a life similar to the life of those around us, merging it without a ripple, is genuine life. And that all unshared happiness is not happiness. And this was the most vexing of all. God wants us to be one, but not alone alone. Because we are one, not four. Jesus is praying for us to be a community of unity. And God, now we pray that as we have taken these words and heard them with our ears, seen them on, in our Bibles and on the screen, Lord, that you would take what we've heard today, And Lord, may it impress upon us so that we will put into practice what you have for us. Lord, thank you for how you demonstrate your love for us and how you give us practical ways to be reminded of your sacrifice on our behalf. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to demonstrate our common unity by celebrating communion right now. Uh, When you came in, you were handed a cup, if you could find that. Uh, Don't open anything yet, because I want to draw your attention to Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. And remember the scene where a dispute broke out among the disciples in this setting. Listen then to the words of Jesus. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my body blood. That's the language of substitutionary sacrifice. That's the language of atonement. This is my body given for you. The cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Savior died in your place as your substitute. That means he died for you Instead of you, you don't have to pay the price for your sins through good works, through promises. You can't pay the price anyway. He did all of that in order to purchase you for his own purposes. And the bread and the cup remind us that the Lamb of God sacrificed himself as full and final payment for sinners, Thus, fully satisfying God's righteous and holy wrath. He poured out his life so that you and I can be pardoned, and he died in order to make us one. And if you have not yet repented of your sins and turned to Jesus and trusted him as your substitute, as the one who died in your place by calling out and saying, Jesus, I need you to save me from my sins. Thank you for dying in my place on the cross and being raised again on the third day. I not only believe that, but I now receive you, Jesus. Come into my life. And make me into the person you want me to be. If you've not yet been saved, that's your next decision. If you are saved, I invite you now to participate in this time of communion. But before we receive communion, it's important to reflect. To take a spiritual inventory. These words are written to a church filled with division, conflict, 1 Corinthians 11.28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So take some time now, close your eyes, and consider your relationship with God. If you're not saved yet and you're ready to trust him, do that right now. And Confess any sins that God brings to mind. If there's a relationship that's ruptured and God's prompting you to do what you can to make that right. Decide to do that today and commit afresh to the great commission and to unity.